Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air. But I punish my body and enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's wonderful to see you all again. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, during the spring and the summer, we're doing a sermon series called Sans Peril, Without Equal. When someone or something is said to be sans peril, what that means is that they are literally the best in the world, that they are a class above all the rest. And so each week during the sermon series, we're going to be looking at two people who are the best in their particular field. And we're not only going to examine their success, but we're going to look at the qualities and the characteristics that allowed them to rise to the top. And then we're going to view those qualities and characteristics through a biblical lens, and we're going to ask, how does God want us to use those qualities and characteristics so as to better our walk with God, to be better Christians, and to create God's kingdom here on earth? Last week, we talked about two of the greatest inventors of all time. This week, we're going to talk about two of the best sports legends to ever walk the face of the earth, Serena Williams and Michael Phelps. I'd like to begin this morning by talking about Michael Phelps, who was born on June 30th, 1985 in Baltimore, Maryland. He was the third of three children. He had two older sisters. And at the age of nine in 1994, his parents divorced. And this was very, very hard on Michael in particular. It was hard on his whole family. And so his mother, Debbie, who was a middle school principal, really became the glue around which the family functioned. Now, Michael, he was a boy who was very energetic. He had a lot of trouble focusing on things, which pretty much means he had ADHD. But as a result of the influence of his sisters, and partly as a need to kind of focus his energy, they got him into swimming at the age of seven. And he showed a lot of natural talent. And it's important to understand that there's a lot of kids who show natural talent. But as he progressed around the time he was 11 years old, Bob Bowman, who was the coach of the North Baltimore Aquatic Club, he got together with Debbie and he said, look, your son has real talent, talent that actually could take him to the Olympics. And so if we play this right, he could actually make it there. Now, 
As a competitive swimmer myself, I can tell you that every single person who gets into swimming and really focuses on it has a dream of making it to the Olympics. The reality is, is that there is a very few people who actually get there. There's very few people who actually make the Olympic trial cut, and then out of those who make the Olympic trial cut, only two are taken in each event. But Michael, he heard this from Bob Bowman, and he decided that he was going to just run with it, or probably better, he swam with it. And he started focusing in on his strokes, working really hard, and the stroke where he really excelled was butterfly, which of the four strokes where you can be competitive, which is freestyle, backstroke, breaststroke, and butterfly, it is by far the most difficult. By the age of 15, and this photo that you see right here is actually him at 15 years old when he was going to try for the Olympic team, he became the youngest male ever to qualify for the Olympics. And he qualified in his signature event, the 200-meter butterfly, which many swimmers will tell you is probably the hardest event of all the events that you can swim. And he qualified for the 2000 Sydney Olympics. And he ended up getting fifth place when he was there, which is really, really remarkable. Because if you don't know anything about Olympic swimming, there's a lot that goes into actually winning a medal when you go to the Olympics. So you don't just swim the event once. You have to swim it three times. So you swim a preliminary heat when you get there, which is everybody who's qualified for it. And then the top 16 from that preliminary heat will come back for a semifinal heat. And then when they swim that, the top eight from the semifinal will come back for the final. And once they swim that, that's when they will award the medals. So in order for Michael Phelps to get fifth place, he had to be able to win or get to the top of the pack every single time he was swimming to come back all times. So this is a lot for a 15-year-old to take on to himself. But he didn't seem to be too bothered by it. Because seven months later, at the 2001 World Championships, he ended up getting first place, first in the world, and he not only did that, he broke the world record in the 200-meter butterfly. And he is the youngest person at 15 years and nine months to break a world record. Now from there, Michael Phelps set his eyes on Athens, which was the 2004 Olympics. And as he trained for this, he became a master of all the strokes. And so beyond butterfly, he started to do really well in what was known as the individual medley. So you can swim each of the individual strokes, but then there is an event where you swim all the strokes at once, and this is known as the IM. And so he had become very, very proficient at this. And so when he goes to the 2004 Athens Olympics, he doesn't get fifth place. Instead, he ends up winning six gold medals while he's there. He wins the 100 and 200 meter butterflies, and he wins the 200 and 400 meter individual medley. Now, in doing this, he set three Olympic records and one world record in the 400 IM. But the Olympics that everybody will remember with Michael Phelps is going to be 2008 when he went to Beijing. Because going to Beijing, he set out to do the impossible. He was going to attempt to win eight gold medals in a single Olympics. 
No person had ever done this before, and many people believed that it was absolutely impossible for him to be able to do this. He was trying to break Mark Spitz's record of seven gold medals in a single Olympics. He was going to swim five individual events and three relays. Now, if you watch that Olympics, there were a lot of really amazing moments during his swims. But perhaps the most intense was when he was going for gold medal number seven with the 100-meter butterfly. So just to put this in context for you, in order to win those previous six gold medals, he didn't just swim six times. When you add in the preliminary, the semifinal, and the final heats, going into this 100-meter butterfly, this was his 17th competitive race of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And so you have to realize that he had been having to go again and again and again against the top swimmers in the world, defeating them every single time. And we didn't know it as the American populace watching this, but we were unaware that he was just exhausted. He was super, super tired. And so going into this race, which we're going to watch the whole thing, I just want you to notice how far behind he is at the halfway point, the 50 point coming home. So let's take a look at this and you'll see how he does. Now every time I watch that, it's just so amazing to me that he was able to come back from being that far behind and to win it. And it was just by the slimmest of margins. He would go on from there to be able to win his eighth gold medal with the 4x100 medley relay where he swam the butterfly leg. And in swimming that, they were actually behind. The Americans were not in the lead. He got them the lead, and that is how they ended up winning. Now, as a result of that Olympics, he ended up setting, with his eight gold medals, he got seven world records and one Olympic record. Now, to put this in perspective, what he was able to do at this Olympics, if you take Phelps' eight gold medal haul and you compare it to other countries and the number of gold medals that they won, he tied with Italy that got ninth in terms of the number of gold medals won at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. If Michael Phelps had been his own country, he would have come in 25th place, edging out the Czech Republic for the total number of medals having been won. So just to say, this is truly something that will probably never be repeated again. And if it is, it's going to be something that we're really going to look forward to. And from there, he would go on to swim in two other Olympics. And his total medals that he would win as a result would be 28 medals. He would win 23 gold, three silver, and two bronze. Now, what makes Phelps such a remarkable swimmer? is not just his body, which by the way is perfectly designed for swimming, and it's not just his drive, which he certainly has, and it's not just his fierce competitiveness, which he also has. It's his longevity in the sport. So Michael Phelps was able to stay at the top of the swimming world for 18 years, which is very unusual in swimming. Swimming is really a young man's game. Most people don't make it much past the age of 25 when they're swimming, simply because of the amount of training involved. So if you're not familiar with competitive swimming, you have to do what's called volume training. And volume training means that you're swimming huge numbers of meters all the time. Phelps would sometimes swim 20,000 meters in a single day, which is more than 12 miles. And at his level, there's no team around him because there's nobody fast enough to keep up with him. It's just him versus the clock. And so you have to be mentally tough as nails to be able to keep that up 
day after day, month after month, year after year. And if you know anything about his story, he struggled for a long time after Beijing to really get his life back together. But thinking of people who are mentally tough as nails, this leads me to the second athlete I want to profile for you today, which is Serena Williams. So Serena Williams was born in Saginaw, Michigan on September 26, 1981. She was the fifth of her mother's five daughters. And when she was four years old, her father, Richard Williams, decided that he was going to move his family out to Compton, California for a job that he had received. Now, he was not aware that the school system in Compton was so bad. And so when he got there, he decided that he was going to pull his girls, Venus and Serena, out of school and he was going to homeschool them. But even more than going through the process of moving to Compton, what would influence Venus and Serena in their lives was when their father, Richard, was sitting down one day and he was watching TV and he came across a tennis match. And he had never seen tennis before in his life, but he was amazed by the size of the check that was being handed to the winner. And he thought to himself, I bet I can teach my girls how to play this game. And so this former sharecropper who had never played a game of tennis in his life, he decided that he was going to learn this intricately complex game. And so he comes up with this 78-page plan of how he's going to train his daughters. He scrounges together a bunch of balls in a shopping cart. He gets them rackets. And what he would do is every day after they would finish their studies, they would make their way down to the courts that were down the street, the public courts that were down the street from where they lived, and they would train every single day. Now, what Richard Williams did not know at the time is that he was teaching his daughters a style of tennis that would revolutionize the game. So on those crack courts in Compton with gunfire sometimes ringing out in the background, he taught his daughters to serve hard and to hit hard from anywhere on the court, which today is how the women's game is played, but at that time, nobody was really playing that way. Now, by the age of nine, Serena had progressed along enough that she was accepted into Rick Macy's Tennis Academy, which is in West Palm Beach, Florida. So they moved from Compton to West Palm Beach. And by the time she was 10 years old, Serena was ranked number one in the state of Florida with a record of 46 and three. And it's important to say that Florida is the place where all the best tennis players from around the world come. So the fact that she was number one was a big deal. But then Richard Williams does something that was at the time really looked down upon, but it made sense in retrospect. So because Venus and Serena were black and they were playing in a sport that was dominated by white players, they were encountering a lot of racism from the parents and from the players themselves. And so he made a decision that he was gonna pull them out of the junior tournament. And the reason why he wanted to do that is because he didn't want his daughters to associate tennis with hate and prejudice. And in doing this, he ended up taking over the training from Macy. And he kind of said, you know what, we're just going to have my girls skip the junior league altogether, and they're just going to go straight to professional. Now, at the time, People said, yeah, right, I'm sure that's going to happen. That would be like you taking your kid out to Little League and saying, you know what, we're just going to skip straight from Little League and we're going to go right into the pros. But he very much proved everyone wrong. So in 1997, Serena Williams, at 
16 years and one month, she enters into the Ameritech Cup tournament, which is here in Chicago. Now, at this tournament here in Chicago, this is where Serena recorded her first wins over top 10 players. So she was ranked number 304 in the world at that point in time. And in this tournament, she defeated number seven, Mary Pierce, and number four in the world, Monica Sellis. And she ends up getting to the semifinal match where she's defeated by Lindsay Davenport. Now this was a huge, remarkable thing. It sent waves through the tennis world because she was the lowest ranked player in history to ever beat two top 10 ranked players in a single tournament. And as a result of that win, she ended up moving from 304th in the world to 99. That's how she ended up the 1997 season. Now, because of this, she was in the top 100 and now she could be on the world tour, meaning that she could travel all over the world to these tournaments where you end up playing for a lot of money. And she was able to enter into her first Grand Slam major tournaments. So if you're not familiar with tennis, the biggest tournaments in tennis are known as the Grand Slams or the majors. And these majors happen in four different places around the world. The first one happens in the Australian Open. That's a hard court tournament. The next one takes place, it's the French Open, and that's a clay tournament. Then you have Wimbledon, which is a grass tournament. And then you have the US Open, which again is a hard court tournament. The top 128 men and 128 women in the world are allowed to compete in these tournaments. And the reward is huge. If you win these tournaments, it's millions of dollars in prize money, and you get advertising from it, which is huge as well. And so this is a tournament which everybody wants to be a part of and everybody wants to win, but these are grueling tournaments. They're really, really hard to get through. So in order to win this tournament, you have to win seven successive rounds, and every time you go through a round, you are facing harder and more difficult opponents. Tennis is a very unique sport in the sense that it's very one-on-one. -on -one. You're going against another person. It's kind of like boxing in that way, where the opponent is always trying to adjust to what you are doing, and they're always trying to maneuver you out of your place of power. And so you always have to stay one step ahead of where they are if you're going to win. Now, in these tournaments, these women's matches, they can last upwards of three hours, and the men's matches can last upwards of five hours. The toll a single match can take on a player, both mentally and physically, is immense. And so you can understand how having to repeat that seven times in a row is very, very hard. And there's very few players who ever win a major tournament. It's just simply that hard to do. Now, Serena Williams, she ends up winning her first major tournament in 1999 at the US Open, just one month shy of her 18th birthday. Now, in order to win this, she had to defeat in succession Kim Kleisters, Conquina Martinez, Monica Sellis, Lindsay Davenport, who was the returning world champion, and Martina Hingez in the final, who was the number one player in the world. Now what's important for you to know about all of these women is that every single one of them had won a major Grand Slam tournament at some point in their career and some of them had won multiple Grand Slam tournaments and she had to take them out one after another. Now in doing this and winning this tournament she ended up 
gaining the ranking of fourth in the world. Now, she was on top of things. There's no doubt about it. But the toll that that U.S. Open took on her, it took her three years until she would win another major. And in 2002, when she came back, that's when she dominated tennis from that point forward. So in that year, she ended up winning the French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. And over the next 15 years, she would amass another 23 Grand Slams, more than any woman or man in the Open era. On top of that, she and her sister would win 14 Grand Slam double titles, and she would also win four Olympic gold medals, one as an individual and three in doubles with her sister. Now, to give you a sense of just how dominant she is in the sport. I'd like to show you a montage of some of Serena's best hits from Wimbledon. And Wimbledon is a Grand Slam that she has won seven times. So just take a look at this. Now clearly, what you can see from this is that the reason why she dominates is because of the power that she possesses. But powerful strokes alone are not enough to win at tennis. You have to be pinpoint accurate. You have to have really, really advanced reflexes to do that. Like you saw when she knocked that ball back that was hit right at her and she did it immediately. You also have to be willing to hunt down balls that seem impossible to get. You gotta go at a full sprint and hit it back and you saw that when she did that by hitting literally around the net to get it back in. And you not only have to do this once in a while, you have to do this hundreds of hundreds of times every match over and over again. And so to be able to do that, it's really hard for players to do that consistently. And so very much like Michael Phelps, what has made Serena so dominant is that she has had longevity in the sport. At the age of 38, she is still one of the best women on the tour. She still, at any point in time, could win a major. And very much like Michael Phelps, she has this mental tenacity that whenever she faces an opponent, she's able to kind of size them up, break down their game, exploit their weaknesses to the point where they don't believe that it's possible to win against her. So what do these two legendary athletes have to teach us about Christianity? Well, what I find to be so interesting is that, yes, both of them have this amazing physical prowess. They're both built just specifically right for their sport. But it's their mental ability to perform under pressure again and again, which I find to be so amazing. No matter how difficult the circumstances, they will simply never give up. And in my mind, this is very similar to what we face as Christians. So in Christianity, once you become a Christian, Jesus expects us to live lives that are very different from ordinary people. In fact, the life that Jesus expects us to live is very difficult. It's not easy because Jesus expects us to rearrange our priorities. So unlike normal people who can have their self-interest front and center, as a Christian, <clears throat> we simply cannot do that. We have to lay our self-interest aside. We have to focus on the needs of other people. And in focusing on other people's needs, when we come across someone who is suffering, what that means is they have to be our top priority. We have to sacrifice what we have to get them back up on their feet. And that means we have to sacrifice our time, our money, our material possessions, whatever it takes for us 
to make sure that we're helping these people. And this is what Jesus means when he talks about in his scripture, that the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. This is something that we have to really appreciate, which is that the reason why the gate is narrow is because what he's asking us to do is very, very hard for many of us. And indeed, many people cannot do it. And so for Jesus, the good life, the godly life, is a hard life where you don't take the easy way out. Very similar in my mind to what we talked about on Good Friday. So if you listen to that sermon on Good Friday back in April, I talked about this idea of how Jesus' teachings demand a lot from us. In fact, the demands are so great that it's a level of sacrifice that many of us are not willing to give. And this is why Paul thinks of Christianity in terms of an athletic race. He compares it to that. And he says to us in the scripture we read this morning, you need to run the race in such a way that you can win it. And so very similar to a marathon, if you're going to train for a marathon, then you need to go out and you need to be running consistently. You have to put in the miles. And the reason why is because running marathons, it's very mentally and physically fatiguing. There are certain points along the way of marathons where you just want to quit and give up. And so if you haven't put in the training, it's likely that you will quit and give up. And so in this way, it's the same thing with Christianity that we need to put in training so that when we face adversity, we can be our best selves. Now, unlike a marathon where you have to go running, we have to do something very different. We have to focus on internal improvements and external improvements. We have to be willing to look at ourselves and ask, how can we improve? How can we do better? We need to look in the mirror and ask, where are our faults and our flaws so that we can do better and say to ourselves, yes, I know that God accepts me just as I am. And that is very, very true, that God does accept us just as we are. But we can also make a choice as Christians to try to improve, to try to do incrementally better. And so for us, when we're looking at that hard path that Jesus is talking about, the narrow gate, so to speak, When you're trying to do that, what that means is that you're willing to stay the course of Christianity no matter how hard it gets. And this is important because when you do what Jesus asks of you, when you're focusing on the needs of others and setting your self-interest aside, those needs can feel overwhelming. And so what we need to do is we need to train to the point where we don't feel overwhelmed by the needs of the world, but at the same time, Realize that we are responsible for fulfilling those needs. And this is a hard thing for us to do. And we want to give up. Sometimes we look at the needs of the world and my goodness, it feels so overwhelming. And this is very similar to how Serena Williams and Michael Phelps felt during their careers. So both of them at certain times, the work ahead of them was so great that they wanted to give up. They really wanted to quit. They were tired of doing what they were doing, but they are two of the best athletes in the world because they had this mental willingness, this focus, that no matter what hardships life threw their way, they were never willing to give up. They were going to consistently keep working hard. They would come back to the tennis court, back to the pool, and they were always going to try again no matter what life circumstances they faced. And this is what we really need to do as Christians. So as Christians, we find ourselves in a position 
where we always have to try to do our best, that, that when we are faced with difficult circumstances in our lives and in the world around us, that we are always trying to improve ourselves and the world, regardless of how challenging Jesus' demands might feel for us. And right now, we are living in a time and place where the demands from Jesus, they feel very hard. Because we're living in a world that is in the middle of a lot of chaos. We're living in a world that is not only being affected by a pandemic and economic devastation, but we are also in a world, particularly in America, where we are dealing with a lot of historical injustice that has been levied against many minorities in this country, particularly black and brown individuals, who are now finding themselves in a place where they are speaking out and trying to say this cannot go on any longer. And we as Christians, we are faced with a hard reality, which is that if Jesus was here, he would tell us that we need to step up and help those who are struggling. The premise of this country is that everybody should be on a fair playing field. And the fact is, they're not. And we, as a predominantly white church, we need to do the work to ensure that we are leveling the playing field right here in our own backyard. And so you may have, earlier this week, read the letter that was sent from a member of our congregation, uh, Floyd Mays. And Floyd, he told us a lot of different things that we can do to be able to try to help the black community here in this country. And I really want us to be dedicated to that as a church. Is it hard work? Absolutely it is. Is it uncomfortable work? Absolutely it is. It's going to be challenging for us to come together and to talk about a lot of these things, but we have to do it. We have to rise to the occasion, and we cannot shirk back from our Christian responsibilities because that's part of what it means to create God's kingdom here on earth. And the beautiful thing is we don't have to do this alone. Very similar to Michael Phelps or Serena Williams. Michael Phelps had Bob Bowman. Serena had her father. They inspired them and motivated them to be their best even when they didn't feel like they had that in their lives. And we have the same thing. We have God and Jesus to focus us in, and we have each other to push us forward. We simply have to trust that God is going to lead us down the right road, even if that road feels hard, it feels treacherous. We need to do that because it's so important for us to live out the hard path, to do what Jesus says, to enter through that narrow gate. And so I know that for me, the biggest thing that I want to have happen is that when I meet my maker, that God looks at me and says, I know you did everything you could because the worst thing that could happen is if God were to say to me, you didn't do enough, you didn't try hard enough because in this race that we are in right now, I wanna stand on that podium and I want God to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You ran the good race, you fought the good fight, now come and collect the reward that awaits you. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.